Welcome to the Enneagram 2.0 podcast. I'm Beatrice Chestnut. And I'm Wurano Pais. And today we are doing a special podcast where we answer some of your questions. So it's a Q&A where we've taken some of the questions that people have sent in on our Facebook page, and we are going to answer your questions today. So how do you feel about that, Uranio? How are you doing today? I, I'm good, thank you. And I love interacting with our uh, listeners because, um, you know, it's my, my task as a five on the Enneagram to grow this way, to listen more and talk more. So I'm excited. Yes, and I think it's good too because we're always wondering, you know, what should we talk about that people are really interested in? What do people want to know most about the Enneagram and how can we speak to that when we uh, think of the think about the topics for our podcast. So I like that we're doing this kind of a podcast and I think we'll do this every once in a while where uh, we answer questions uh, that people are interested in knowing the answer to. So we'll we'll keep asking for your questions and feel free to send them in because we want to speak to what people want to know. Um, there the were so many good questions that we decided to do actually two episodes with these uh, batch of questions already. And uh, also we got so many ideas for new episodes of the Enneagram 2.0. So thank you who has sent out uh, your opinions and questions. So the first question we'll address has to do with uh, types and typing. And we got several questions along the same vein asking how do we differentiate between specific types and the dominant instinct? Um, how do we decide what our instinctual sequence is? Uh, how do we understand uh, what type we are given that the instinct plays a role? And I want to first of all point out that we have, uh, we did a podcast on subtypes, we did a podcast on instincts, and we did a podcast on countertypes. So it will be important if you're interested in these topics to listen to those podcasts, because I think they will, they may answer some of your questions. Um, but I think I, I'll say something about this, Uranio, and then maybe you can uh, let us let, let us know what you think. Um, first of all, I think it's really good to start with finding your type. Um, now, if you focus too much on your dominant instinct first, I think you're going to get very confused because I just think sometimes it's really hard to know what your dominant instinct is. Uh, just like it can be hard to know what center you come from before you know your type. Like if you ask uh, someone who's a one who knows nothing about the Enneagram, they may not say they're a body type. They might say they're a head type because ones can be very intellectual uh, and objective and they can you know, be a lot in their heads. So I think it's good to go in the door that's easiest to find your way forward. And so I would suggest if you're finding your type or wanting to get more certain about your type, it's good to really focus on which of the nine types you are. Now that said, I believe, we believe that it's really important to know the 27 subtypes because there are some of these 27 subtypes that aren't really addressed when you just look at the nine types alone. So it's almost like finding your type but 
also studying the subtype so that you ha start to have a sense of what all the possibilities are. Now, the subtype uh, includes the too much about the dominant instinct until you first find your type and then type, find your subtype. Because for instance, if you, maybe you think you're, you're a sexual dominant sub instinct, you have a sexual dominant instinct. Let me start again. So for instance, maybe you believe you might have a sexual dominant instinct. Well, you could be a heart type. And just be very focused on relationships or on one-to-one -one relationships or really want to uh, connect with people at a deep level. Uh, and so it will be important for you to find your type first because, for instance, I've seen a lot of heart types who overdetermine as sexual dominance when really it's just their heart type uh, that is part of what they're seeing or a big part of what they're saying. So I would say try to find your type first because that will help you. Then, then it's not a matter of differentiating between dominant instinct and type. Uh, it's more a matter of, okay, you know, I know I'm a four or I know I'm a six or I know I'm a nine. Now the next step is which of the three subtypes I am. Now, again, if you're a self-preservation four or a social seven, one of the counter type subtypes that can have a hard time finding your type because in many books, you just won't be described. Uh, it will be important for you while you're looking for your main type, uh, which one of the nine types you are, to have the subtypes in your mind, to be studying those at the same time, to make sure you don't miss uh, finding your type uh, because you are a lesser known subtype. What would you say, Uranio? What, how would you uh, speak to this question of how can people differentiate which type they are versus what their dominant instinct might be? So I, I really appreciate your explanation, B, and I want to build on, upon it. Uh, I, th I think that uh, we first suggest people find type and then they go to subtype. And some people will really uh, be sure that they are of that type when they go to the subtype level. Then they need to come back to type uh, when that happens to read again about the, the main aspects, uh, the key aspects of that type. Some people may think they are of that type. Then when they go to the subtype level, they don't really find themselves. And then they come back and, uh, uh, you know, open space to potentially be in another type. So it's a little bit of a dance. It's not completely linear, but indeed uh, we at, at CP Enneagram Academy suggest that people go in the sequence like type, subtype, and then instinct. Uh, now, when, when it comes to instinct, uh, the suggestion is find your dominant instinct first by finding your subtype as you said. And this is because the subtypes um, are sort of easier for uh, us all to see uh, um, happening in life. Uh, they are more straightforward um, descriptions of the typical behaviors, but also the typical tendencies the person has in a more visible way. Although it also carries lots of uh, unconscious uh, content. 
if you go straight to instinct, it will probably be not as easy because it's if it's more unconscious. And but then by finding out your subtype, you will, as a consequence, know what your dominant instinct is. Uh, at that point, um, perhaps it's for most people, not for all, but for most, it's still a little early to explore what the repressed instinct might be, which is the third in what we call the instinctual sequence or the weakest of the three. And uh, that could come perhaps a little later in your self-observation process. It's already a lot to digest uh, about the type, subtype, and then dominant instinct. It's definitely very important you get later to what your repressed instinct is. But maybe it's not the best idea to do it all at once. Now, when you find out your dominant instinct, um, you, you need to see um, how much you are more like that than people of your same type. So... The trick, uh, the, the tricky thing here is not to compare yourself with people of another type. Let me give you an example. Like, if you think you're a five, and then you think you might be sexual, and one of the things about sexuals is that they tend to be intense or more intense than people of the same type. But still, you're a five, right? So if you compare yourself with other fives, you will find out potentially that you're more intense than them. While if you compare yourself with an eight or a four, chances are that you won't see yourself as being as intense as them, even if they are not sexual dominant. So make sure that you, you consider what it means to have that dominant instinct within your type. And for that, it's much easier when you know more people of that uh, type, your type, than only you. Uh, but, you know, in a way, these is even not as necessary as initially thought, because you will have explored um, what your dominant instinct is by simply deciding what your subtype is. Now, when it comes to your ins dominant instinct, instead of focusing on behavioral tendencies, uh, what um, the, you and I suggest usually is to focus on unconscious material that is typical of that instinct, on you know reasons behind that, on the psychological dimension of that, on the collective historical dimension of it, on the spiritual dimension of it, and the somatic dimension of it. So more and more, we're not emphasizing as much the behavioral aspects of instincts, although they do exist. Yeah, and I do think sometimes you have to look at the behavioral dimension because that's the one that's the most obvious. For instance, we often say that to find your subtype and therefore your dominant instinct, it's important not to focus 
on what you think about yourself because sometimes when we when we're thinking about what am i like here what am i like we can imagine a lot of different scenarios in our heads but when we actually look at what we've done in our lives and the things we do every day that's where we see the dominant instinct more clearly because you can't really argue with the fact that you've done this, this, and this. For instance, I have a friend who's a nine and he came to one of my workshops thinking he was a one-to-one nine. And when uh, I talked all about the social nine, um, suddenly he realized that when he looked at over the course of his life, he had been the leader of all these different organizations that he had been involved in. And it wasn't like he chose that, like a different type might do, but he kind of got drafted into leadership. People asked him to be the leader. People told him they wanted him to be the leader. And then he ended up doing it and doing quite a good job. But it was like, how could I have ever thought I was anything else? Because I, you know, in 10 different organizations, I was the president of my alumni association, the president of the Enneagram Association. And, and so that's, I think, what really helps us see what the dominant instinct is in our life. But again, for him, he, he went in the door of the subtype, realizing that the social nine description fit him the most in terms of what he did in his life. Now, the psychological dimension is another dimension, and the historical collective is another, and it's good to look at those two. But sometimes, for instance, I was thinking about myself with the historical collective dimension of the instincts, and until I did some family constellation work, I don't know if I would have known what that was for me. And so it could be that it's harder to know that until you do a different kind of work, or maybe you just know something about your family history that makes it clear. Uh, but I do think there are different elements. But to, to make a long story short, which might be too late for that, I think it's important to say, go in the door of the type description and even more precisely the subtype description and be honest with yourself about what you do. I sometimes tell my story that it was hard for me to see myself as a self-preservation too, because so much of what was getting expressed through my subtype to me was things I didn't want to look at or I wasn't aware of. Like for instance, being very fearful. As a two, I was repressing fear and I didn't want to see myself as a fearful person. In pride, as a two, wanting to have a certain image, I didn't see myself as uh, making myself small and depending on others and being fearful. I mean, these are all things I didn't want to see. So it may take you a little bit of work to see how your dominant instinct is showing up and to see how your subtype behavior plays out and to own it. So give yourself some time, see it as a process, try to start with type, then go to subtype, ask other people in your life that know you really well to give you some reflection. Uh, but but those, that's the way I would go because no, noticing what your dominant instinct is is going to be harder. Um, and I would also say that it's good to find your instinctual sequence. Uh, what What is your dominant instinct? What's your secondary instinct? And what's your repressed instinct? If you do it in the same way, look at the subtype descriptions. Which of the three subtypes of your type do you relate to the most, the second, and the least? And again, that may take a while. It may take a little bit of time to sort that out. Um, I'm thinking I want to give an example of that, which pertains to another question we were asked. But anything else you want to say before I move to that example that I think supports what we're talking about here? Um, I, I think we covered... Um 
a lot of it. So go ahead with your example. I think it's a good idea to illustrate. Yeah. So I we had another example, and I also have worked with people on exactly this issue. But the, the, the other question we had is, I would love to hear more about the three subtypes of type six in a more nuanced manner. They are so different. They seem like extremes. But how do you find your dominant instinct if you don't fit into those exact descriptions? So this is... Uh, I think this can pertain to a lot of people, not just sixes. First of all, when you read the subtype descriptions, it's common not to relate to 100% of the description. Now you might, you might relate to everything that's part of the description and you can find those descriptions in the complete Enneagram in in my subtype booklet. Uh, and certainly in uh, the, podcast we did on subtypes. And we also have a new workshop, an online uh, recorded workshop that is available on our website on the instincts and the subtypes. So these are ways that you can learn about these the subtypes and see which one of these you relate to the most. But remember, either because of history or because of blind spots or because of different things, don't, you know, look for the one that fits the most. Uh, for instance, there was someone who emailing me this week saying she can't decide what type, which subtype of four she might be. And she's really holding on to this one thing saying she can't be a self-preservation four. But that one thing she's holding on to saying that makes it so she can't be a self-preservation four isn't necessarily something that is a deal breaker for that, for, for being a self-preservation four. It's something you might have or you might have less. And again, it might also be a blind spot. So let's talk about six in answer to this question. Um, so it can be hard for sixes to get clear about their subtypes and their instinctual sequence because the three subtypes are so different. And here's what happens. Here's what I see happening. Um, let's say your self-preservation first. Your, your, your self-preservation is your dominant instinct as a six. That makes you a self-preservation six. Now you have certain characteristics like being warm and friendly and being more aware of fear and being someone who doubts things. These are self-preservation six traits. But one of the self-preservation six traits is not very much in touch with aggression uh, and not really being comfortable with other people's aggression. These are also type six uh, self-preservation six traits. Now I worked I, I worked with a person recently who was oh I was helping her sort out her subtype and and what she was saying is you know I do I do I do get angry sometimes uh, I I can be fierce I I am in touch with my anger it's not completely a blind spot so I don't know what six I am because that maybe I'm a I'm a one to one or a sexual six and in fact a friend of hers had reflected I think you're a sexual six because. Uh, you can be decisive and you can you can be strong and you can be aggressive. Um, but when I really talked to her and said, okay, what do you tend to do most? What do you lead with first? What's your first option when it comes to dealing with fear or interacting with people in the world? And she was pretty clear that being warm and friendly was her first go-to strategy, that she was aware of fear, she was aware of doubt, that the, the, de getting caught in doubt is something that happened to her on a regular basis. Um, so what we ended up seeing was that if you're self-preservation six and you have sexual six as your second, that's kind of the opposite, right? It's not being in touch with fear, I'm, I'm sorry, 
it's not being in touch with anger versus being very much in touch with anger, right? And so if you have sexual six second, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And for sixes especially, but for many different types, that's sometimes how it is, that you have uh, the one that's the dominant and the one that's in the second place is also there and also makes its presence felt. So we ended up uh, believing that self-preservation six was her first one, sexual six was her second, and social six was her repressed. And it makes sense for her that she will sometimes get angry. And certainly self-preservation sixes who have sexual six second sometimes do get angry, especially at people they feel more comfortable with. Um, But sometimes they'll stand up to an authority. Sometimes they will have a counterphobic response. That's normal because there is a mix. There's one that's dominant and one that's second. And the second will make itself known some of the time. So, Urania, anything you would add to that? I like I like your point, B. And um, because there are three instincts, there are six potential instinctual sequences. And we advocate that, indeed, there are these uh, six different uh, options of uh, sequences. Um, because in other approaches, a few other teachers say that there are only three uh, different sequences, but we don't agree. We think that there are six different sequences. And um, imagine that three subtypes, each subtype then has two different possibilities, uh, two different sequences, basically switching the second with the third uh, instinct in the sequence. Because like for the self-preservation six, as you said, there there is the self press six with social second and then the self-press six with the sexual second. Now, they change and they are more visibly different even for sixes than for other types. I would say also for fours, it's, it's very important to know the sequence so that you understand a little more your tendencies. Now, having said that, I believe that sixes also need to know the other tendency that they have as type six, like all sixes, and that is to doubt to the end. So we see that sixes at times don't get to the conclusion that they are sixes or what their subtype is because they want to be more and more sure in the end. And they, they think, are you sure about it? It's, it's, it's almost a way that we validate sometimes that the person is a six if the person is doubting to the end. And there are other uh, tendencies for people of other types, like for nines, nines are the ones who see themselves as if they were other types. I mean, the most, they see themselves as being many other types or twos or threes might uh, have this feeling that uh, they can become the type that the the other wants them to be. Or maybe the four resists um, to being a type because they want to be unique. Um, So how come there are other people like me? Or sevens, they think that describing themselves as one type out of the nine is limiting. You know, so we all have biases. Uh, when it comes to finding out our type. Let's do a short break. 
If you like this podcast, visit www.cpenneagram.com for much more great Enneagram content. The Enneagram 2.0 podcast goes live every other Thursday on all main platforms. Stay tuned to learn more about yourself and others. Have you already subscribed for B and Yaranyu's YouTube channel? Go to YouTube and search for Chestnut Pies and click on like and subscribe. Let's move on to another question. Uh, the next question is this one. Uh, this person says, I'm a social nine with an eight wing. Does the wing give me more qualities or the social instinct? So I think this gives us a good opportunity to clarify a little bit of what we think about wings, especially. So I would say that the answer to this is that we believe that the social instinct gives a lot more flavor, a lot more traits, determines how your personality shows up much, much, much more than any kind of wing, in this case, what this person is calling an eight wing. Um, we don't emphasize wings in the way that others do. We don't see them as subtypes. So in other words, when this person says, I'm a nine with an eight wing, in my mind, I think to myself, I have no idea what that means about this particular person. Because an eight trait or traits could flavor a nine in many different ways. It could look very different for different nines. And I don't really know what that means. So for, for us, um, we think, yes, the wings do flavor the main type. They, they Each person, uh, when they have a main type, may relate to some qualities of their wing types. Um, usually one is more conscious than the other, but uh, we believe that even more important than that, wings are developmental pathways. That means you can consciously lean in one direction or another in order to broaden the fixed perspective of your main type. So we believe they're not subtypes like the instinctual subtypes are subtypes. They are whole other, more nuanced, more specific personality descriptions that tend to remain constant for most people. Again, most people won't relate to 100% of the archetypal qualities of that specific subtype, one of 27. Um, but usually uh, the subtype description is very instructive on how the person, uh, how the personality uh, manifests. Wings, however, not so much. Uh, they're less influential and they vary more according to the individual. So I always give myself as an example, I'm a two. Uh, someone might say, do you have a one wing? And I might say, well, I relate a lot to several of the one characteristics, but I grew up with two ones in my uh, immediate family of origin, right? My brother and my father are both ones. My brother is my only sibling. So in a family of four, 50% of the people are ones. So doesn't it make sense that I would be influenced by one, by the type one personality in many different ways? And I can tell you those ways, you know, if you're interested. Um, but another two who didn't have two ones living in uh, the household that, that he or she grew up in is not going to relate to one in the same way I do. 
Not at all. They may relate in different ways. Depend. Maybe they had a teacher who was a one who taught them a specific thing, or or maybe they relate a little more to three, and they're a little more unconscious about the ways they might uh, relate to one. So yes, that cer- the Enneagram circle is a spectrum, and certainly our wings shade our main type, and it's good to learn about the wings, uh, your wing types, as a way of knowing more about yourself. But we don't see them as a subtype. Uh, we don't see that they always influence every person in exactly the same way or to the same degree. Uh, what would you add to that, Uranio? We do emphasize subtypes more than wings. We think it's more important to study subtypes than wings. Yes, it's okay and good to study wings, but uh, please, if you if you want to choose between the two, go study subtypes. And we think that. Uh, some time ago, the American Enneagram teachers uh, who didn't have much contact with Claudio Naranjo's work, they tried to explain the differences they saw in types with the wings because they didn't have Naranjo's approach on uh, subtypes. I'm glad you remember to point that out. Yes, I think this is the reason why wings have been overemphasized in in our view is because people were looking for an explanation for why do people of the same type look different sometimes. And so they thought naturally, well, maybe it's the the wing influence. One one influences more than the other and that makes someone look different. Uh, But we believe if you really study wings, they don't really account for that much difference. And if they do, Again, it looks different from, for every person. So in a way, we often say that wings were made to carry the load of explaining the differences between types uh, that the subtypes carry much, much better and more effectively. So that's what we think about that. Now, let's move on to another question. And well, first of all, I want to say we, we did get a question about most common lookalike types and subtypes. And what I would say is this is an important question, especially if you're still trying to find your type. But we, we did do a, a podcast on subtypes and also one on countertypes. And we do have this uh, workshop now available online. And I think it might be more effective for people who are really interested in that to look at that. I think we also did a top five on common lookalikes. Um, so, so I would d- direct you to there, uh, because that is an important question and, uh, we'll, we may do a future podcast on maybe some lookalikes, but, um, but I think it's a, it's a long story and I think we have addressed that in those podcasts. So I hope you'll look there. Now, the next question I'd like to, uh, us to address, which I think is a really good one is, uh, what is the significance of cultural overlay? Uh, and again, this also pertains to typing to some degree, because sometimes it can be a little bit confusing for some people to find their types if they have some sort of cultural influence that is very strong, depending on what country they're they're from. Now, I will say that I believe that uh, one of the amazing things about the Enneagram is that the, the types and the subtypes are persistently accurately descriptive across cultures. So this is a cross-cultural model. This is something you can see in many different cultures that the types remain the same in the way they show up. That said, there is something we call a cultural overlay. So how would you describe the cultural overlay and what do you think are the effects of it? What's the significance of the cultural overlay, Uranio? First, the word overlay explains it a little bit. It's like the type 
and all all the tendencies of type uh, are intact. And then there is something on top of that, which is that cultural tendency. Um, now, it doesn't mean, though, that the cultural overlay is just a superficial thing. It's not. It's sometimes very determining of what happens or doesn't happen uh, in the person's life uh, for different reasons. Um, and uh, sometimes there is work to be done on that cultural overlay, especially when the person migrates or wants to work on some of those aspects for herself. Uh, but usually we don't question culture. It's like it's a given and it's, it's something that simply and above all needs to be respected and taken into account. Now, I want to emphasize that when I say that all the type structure is intact, regardless of the cultural uh, origin of the person, it means that the passion for um, a two or a five, like uh, pride for you as a two or Everest for me as a five, doesn't change much given the fact that I'm from Brazil, you're from the US, or someone who's from Germany, someone from Kenya, someone from China or Australia or Thailand. It's 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 the same thing. The passion is the same thing, the same energy. Now the manifestations of that passion might go one way or another, uh, depending on the the context and the cultural overlay so it might be easier for us to find out the passion um just to go straight to the passion's energy and the the overall tendency that it brings and not only the 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 typical behaviors when we describe type by typical examples or behaviors it doesn't work this way you know um, I can give you an example. I went, uh, the first Enneagram training I went in America, in the US, uh, I heard a story uh, talking about how the nine types react uh, when they got stopped by the police uh, while doing something bad when driving. And as a Brazilian, uh, it did, doesn't matter that I was a five. My reactions were completely different than the reactions from all nine, nine um, types of Americans. And so when we specify examples uh, to try to find out type, we are always running the risk of not getting it right. Um, and one last thing, B, is that talking about uh, culture... Uh, and seeing the cultural aspects of each type in different places, you and I have learned a lot what's not really true when we describe type. It's like, because we see the differences, we say, oh, so it's not that threes are always like that. Look at this person from this other country who's a three and does not have at all those tendencies that we talk about. And um, maybe we need to review what we say about threes. So noticing 
how the patterns change from one culture to another teaches us what we have the parts of our explanations of each type that aren't really accurate. I think you've said it very well. I, I think the cultural overlay is exactly like you said, just that, an overlay. And in certain cultures, um, it's sort of frowned upon to be a certain type or to have characteristics of a certain type. For instance, in some cultures, it's not really okay to be self-promoting. Uh, and so threes can look quite different. Um, and I think in other in other uh, cultures, it can be not very good to be rebellious, let's say, or to go against authority. And so eights and counterphobic sixes uh, might look a little bit different, but it doesn't mean that the underlying personality isn't the same on some way. It's just the way it presents. It's almost like some of the edges have been smoothed over or there's a way that it presents itself that's that's a bit different. And so when we're typing, we need to take into account any cultural factors that may be coloring the way that the, that the person's type shows up. And one last aspect to consider when talking about culture B is that at each culture, there are types that are more easily valued and accepted and others that are not because they are different than what is expected in the cultural dimension. So, and that changes a lot. Like there are cultures that really regard highly type 8, but others that really don't regard highly type 8. So what we see is that the types that find it more difficult to be accepted in those countries, they adapt the most and that they don't come across in that typical way that we read in books. They disguise more. Exactly. So again, good to know about that. And of course, you as a five from a seven culture knows that better than anyone, especially as you've come to the US so much and um, people have accused you of not being a five because you're too outgoing or uh, too good of a speaker or you wear flashy clothes, which of course you don't pick out for yourself. So um, so yeah, we, you've lived the cultural overlay more than most probably. Okay, so let's move on to another question. Um, we had a question which I thought was good. It's it's about something that we sometimes refer to in passing, but that we haven't really gone into very deeply. And this question was a good one because it, it started us talking a little more than we have before about this particular topic. So we got the question, some of us are self-referent fours and who else, some other referent two and who else, and some data question mark referent five and who else. Um, could you clarify more about these distinctions and how to work with them for balance, connection, and growth? So um, this is referring to the idea that some types, and I think there are three of them, um, are self-referencing some types are other referencing and some types i believe it, it's not data referencing it's it's they reference both so um what does this mean i think uh that what we mean when we say self-referencing or other referencing means it means that the person's primary focus of attention so what they tend to refer to first when they're experiencing life is either uh, what's happening outside themselves, 
sort of how other people are feeling, what's going on in the environment, um, what other people think, how other people will evaluate certain things um, versus um, someone who is, and so there, it, this can go either way, right? Well, you can either primarily reference your internal experience, or you can primarily reference or pay attention to focus attention on what's going on outside of you. Now we believe, and we, we talked about this, um, we hadn't really talked about this before, but it was good to get more clarity that how we believe that the types that are self-referencing, uh, are four, seven, and five. And the types that are other referencing, and again, primarily focusing outside themselves as a first line of focus of attention, are twos, nines, and threes. And then there are three more types. And I believe, and again, I think this is still in maybe the hypothesis stage, or we're still talking about this, and we, we may want to provide even more clarity going forward. Um, I think the types that that reference both are six, one, and eight. So that for these types, there's a almost a kind of going back and forth. Now, I don't think this is a conscious process. I think this operates very much at the level of unconscious, like survival strategy, what you're paying attention to as a first line of uh, either defense or just operation or a default mode. I think sixes, ones, and eights kind of have both. Like if you look at ones, for instance, we often say they know what the right thing is just inside themselves. There's like a, a feeling or an inner sense or a, a just a, a standard that they hold really clearly inside themselves of what a good outcome is or what the right thing is. Uh, but I also think that, that, that at some point in, in the life of a one, they determine that based on some cultural standards or based on how what they were criticized for early on or based on uh, something that came to them from their families. And they also reference outside to see if people, other people are following the rules or doing the right thing. Um, and so I do think there's a bit of a back and forth with ones, sixes, and eights. Uh, but I've said a lot, so I want to hear what you think. I agree with you, B. And it's it's still a theory in in. Uh, in the building and uh, in the, in progress, but um, I think that that's probably accurate, and uh, we'll keep investigating. Now, I I, th I agree with you also that this division between other referencing, uh, self referencing, and then both or bouncing back and forth each of them is better than saying that there is a third category of being data uh, referencing. But the question was really nice and made us think and discuss. We actually spent over an hour discussing. <laughs> yes. And I, and I think we'll want to say more about this going forward. But right now, I would just say that this is something that it's important to observe in yourself. Uh, this is something to notice about yourself. Sometimes I ask this when I'm doing typing interviews, and I notice that some people are pretty clear about it and some people really don't know. I think some, for instance, some twos answer that they're self-referencing. Um, so I think sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to even discern in yourself what which you are. But I would say if you're listening to this and you're interested in this, 
um, this is something for you to start noticing in yourself. And, and this pertains to the part of the question that's about how do you work with this for balance and growth. And I think part of it is noticing what you tend to do. Uh, and for a while, it might just be good to notice like, oh, I notice that, you know, if if I'm a two or a nine or a three, I'm kind of looking outside me to get a sense of how I should be or, or, or to get a sense of affirmation or to n- know, like, how should I feel okay with what's going on or what I'm doing? Um, or if I if you're a four or a seven or a five, notice how much you're inside, notice how much you you consult the data of what you want or how you feel or what you're thinking. Um, and, and just notice that for a while. And then I think eventually it's good to learn to go against that a little bit to expand. And sometimes when we talk, we've talked a lot about using the arrow line movements, and we have a podcast on this, sometimes that can be a way of helping you. Like, for instance, I'm a two. And when I do the work of going against the arrow and incorporating healthy type four qualities, part of that is going from being a little bit too much outside myself with my attention and coming inside and really spending more intentional time uh, being more in touch with my own feelings and my own inner experience and living from that a little bit more than I tend to uh, normally as part of my default mode of operation. Okay, I think that was a really, really good question. Uh, So next question, um, someone's asking for tips on how to access different centers. For instance, if you score heavily, if you're a head type, uh, if you're a five, six or seven, how might you develop your heart center? uh, Or how might you develop more connection to your body center? Udani, I want to hear what you have to say about this uh, in answer to this question. Yeah, potentially the answer to that is something we'll need to explore in a whole new podcast, but I'll try to be practical and say a few things for now. Um, When you want to develop your head center, what you need to do mostly is to learn how to, to take in different perspectives. Uh, to be flexible in your mind, not to think that there is only one right answer for something. You need to put yourself in the position of other people and practice this thing uh, calling building different scenarios. Like the head types, they have this natural ability to think of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and it's normal. It's, it's almost um, a default mode for them. Um, and uh, developing your mind, uh, your head center, uh, also has to do with being able to bring your energy up from the belly and the heart to the head to think things through without the bias of the heart and the, and the belly. Uh, and allowing at times yourself to make a more rational decision or to communicate more rationally. Now, if you want to develop emotionally, one one idea is to pay attention to all four emotions, uh, which are fear, anger, sadness, and happiness, and make sure you experience all four. And by experiencing, what I mean is, getting in touch with the emotions and doing nothing about it. It's just feeling, period. 
staying there, uh, not making decisions even. It's just feeling and expressing. And that opens up the heart center and opens up the realm of, of uh, feelings. Uh, and that is important for all of us, including heart types, because at times they don't have the experience of some of the four emotions. Uh, another thing to develop emotionally is to uh, manage reactivity, which is usually emotional, emotional reactivity. And learning how to manage it uh, is fun essential for uh, emotional development and doing therapy, right? But also, you know, in a simple way, imagine that you can develop a bit uh, mentally by reading news or doing uh, uh, crosswords or puzzles or not puzzles, but um, something like Sudoku uh, and studying and writing, reading, and you can develop emotionally by putting yourself in situations that evoke emotions uh, for you. And uh, people who develop can sometimes choose uh like to watch movies that they wouldn't normally uh just to to um a, a, as an emotional gem to help them develop access to that one emotion that's harder for them and last lastly the uh the development of instincts it's a, a lot about developing the five senses so I'll give you an example. Um, many, many, many years ago, I decided that I needed to develop my capacity for smell, for taste, because I was too much in my head. That happened at, at a weekend that I was doing a meditation retreat, and I had a very good um, meditation experience. And during lunch... I started tasting the food in a way that I was not used to. And then I said, wow, I need more of this. And then the five in me said, go do a workshop of some kind. And I had two options, either gastronomy or wine. And then my seven arrow, guess what, B, took me to a wine course. Right? <laughs> so but that was really helpful you know the exercise of smelling the wine and trying to sense what there was if i use only my head i'll never get there so i chose that activity just to truly uh, stimulate that um that uh, sense in me that's such a great example because i've drank wine with you on several occasions. And I really appreciate how you really get into the sensory experience of drinking wine, smelling wine, tasting my wine, knowing. No, of course, there's some knowing that comes in. Your head does get involved. But you really connect that to a, a felt experience that, uh, that I really uh, appreciate. Yeah, I want to emphasize that uh, training the instincts is about training the five senses, and people sometimes mistake instinct for intuition. They are different. Intuition is the sixth sense, right? So we're not talking about this. We're talking about a body competency of knowing where to go, sensing what's happening, it's like when people say, sensing where I need to go and what I need to do. 
right? Uh, don't ask me why, don't stop me, I just know. But it's, it's a body knowledge. And exercising, making quicker decisions, uh, also following your gut, you know, uh, is important for your development. Exactly. And I know that it's been a good exercise for me at times to take a period of time and try to live more from my head, for example, like being a heart type. Um, now, I, I'm pretty heady, you know, I'm you know, pretty educated and, you know, I can, I think of myself as, um, you know, able to be in my head. But if I really approach, say, let's say for the next three hours or the next day, I'm really going to experience life from my head. What I notice is I keep coming back down to my heart without really realizing, without, if I'm not careful, and I see this in the language I use. I see this in how I start even thinking about like appreciating something. <laughs> you know, if I'm sort of appreciating something, I'm kind of back in my heart again. Or if I'm using feeling language as opposed to uh, thinking or making sense of things, understanding language, um, that's often a clue. And so I think it can be good to really try to practice um entering into another kind of experience, whether it, you know, that is not your uh, main default center and, and notice again, I think so much of what we offer is a suggestion to experiment with different experiences and then really, really observe yourself in a very intentional way and notice like, how hard is it to use that language? How hard is it to stay in that space um, and I think you learn a lot about how we keep coming back to our default mode and, and also how we can stretch ourselves by really adding in uh, a kind of, uh, you know, going to another place inside ourselves as a way of, of growing. So in a, there's another question that's, I think, not exactly the same question, but it's, I think, I think of it as a little bit connected um, someone asks, how could one person learn how to fluidly embody or integrate every number and not just the connecting lines? So first of all, I would ask you, Urani, do you think this is a good idea? And, and what would you say in answer to this question? So I wouldn't start there for sure. I wouldn't um, try to develop access to all nine or to the other eight numbers apart from uh, your own type uh, and the theory here be is that the two arrows and the two wings of our dominant type uh, are more easily accessible they are the best possible resources not only because they contain the solutions for our main issues but also because it's it's more feasible for us to go there and get that. While for the other four types that we are not directly connected to, it's not that easy. It's not as available for us. They are a bit more foreign to us. Um, so I wouldn't start there. The only thing I would do on this regard, like experiencing all nine points, 
would be as in uh, exercises that Gurdjieff uh, used to do. Gurdjieff is one of the pioneers of the Enneagram who lived almost, uh, who lived a uh, hundred years ago. Um, he would do exercises of people going from one point to another and another and another just to experience the nine different emotions and and getting in and out of different emotional patterns. Uh, but that's not uh, to say that people would use all nine types. It's more to develop an empathy for all nine, also to develop the very capacity of getting in and out each emotion and to notice which are the emotional patterns that are easier for you to get in and easier or more difficult for you to get out of. I like your answer. I I was thinking very much along the same lines. I was first thinking like, would you really want to do this fluidly embody every number? And is it possible in one lifetime was the next thing I thought of. Um, not just the, you know, and, but I do, I exactly like you're saying, I do think that a, a big part of working with the Enneagram is noticing how we tend to be stubbornly attached to seeing the world through our own lens and coming from the perspective of our main type and how we get stuck there uh, in, in, conscious and unconscious ways. Um, and I do think that first, uh, it, it's helpful to stretch out of that to resist to go to work against that stubbornness uh, by seeking to embody the types that we're connected to. I think the wing types, the type on either side, we were saying earlier, these are developmental stretches. Uh, they're places you have easier access to, to start to to consciously move out of always seeing things through the lens of your main type uh, in a kind of default way that you get stuck in. Um, and then I think the airlines are perfectly designed antidotes for your main type. They're perfectly designed balancing points. Um, and I, I would always, I bow to the wisdom of the symbol uh, in, in, these ways in looking first to trying to go beyond your own number by going to the wing points and the connecting line points, because first of all, it's going to be easier. And second of all, there's a kind, it makes sense. There's a kind of natural growth movement that comes from that, that is encoded in, in the symbol, in the, in the diagram. Um, now that said, I do think of course, there may be moments or situations in someone's life where they think, wow, like for me as a two, um, maybe it might be interesting to, or effective, or just something important to, to experiment with, to, to address a certain situation, thinking about how would a five, how would a healthy five, or how would a healthy six uh, uh, approach this situation? Those are two types I don't have any direct connection to. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that's a place to be spending a lot of time trying to integrate that number in a deep way. Um, because again, we often say, you know, you can spend your whole lifetime just trying to deal with your own number. And as you say, come out of it or come out of the emotions that we tend to get connected to or attached to when we are in our type in an unconscious way. Uh, so I think before we seek to integrate the other numbers, we really need to make sure we're appreciating and doing all the work that's connected to our main type. And often that's actually the way out. The, the looser our patterns get uh, connected to our main type, 
the more we are kind of going to the high side of our own number, which can be another kind of, and maybe even even more effective way of growing as opposed to becoming like, or being able to embody other numbers. Let's do a short break. If you're interested in the types, the subtypes, the Enneagram generally, or the growth paths of each of the types and subtypes, you won't want to miss a special panel event that we have coming up. Uh, Uranio and I are going to moderate an online version of panels of six people uh, for each type, two people of each subtype on three Saturdays starting in mid-January. So we want to tell you about this because the early bird pricing expires on December 15th. And you might want to visit cpenneagram.com backslash calendar to sign up. So here's a question I think we'll be, uh, uh, we'll have a short answer for, and that is someone's asking, uh, about relationships, what are good matches for us and why? What would you say in response to this question? <laughs> um, one very basic answer is that the very best type as a match for your type is the whatever type that has a similar level of awareness than you do. So it's not as much about what type is better or worse. It's more about a matching in levels of awareness and interests when it comes to uh, inner work. Um, at the same time, um, studies of different kinds show that we tend to feel more either very attracted or repulsive uh, to another type that is um, similar to our parents type especially the parent of the opposite sex but um, you know also there is this tendency be that um, in the beginning when we are not very aware we think that our type is the best and all the other types just haven't found that yet that the way to live life is ours uh, and then as time goes by we think that ours the worst and the other ones are all better and then finally we get to the point that we stop judging and we think that all of them are both good and not so good um, so i think i think we you know, we don't ask this question as much uh, because we prefer to say, make sure that you find your way with the person of that type. And instead of searching for people of one type, allow life to do that for you, to, to allow yourself to see what kind of person life is bringing you. And, but, you know, also in a very generic way, I would say that whenever life brings you someone very different from you, it's because you, you, you need to develop a lot uh, those features and you need to see yourself in the mirror to, to develop more tolerance for um, that person who's so different from you. Yeah, I always say that um, for every person of a particular type, 
Uh, there are going to be ways that they relate well to every other type and ways that they might get in trouble with every other type. In fact, I've created a relationship grid that um, we're, I'm going to, I want to put on CP online in the next uh, month um, that basically says that it's a little bit fo more focused on workplace relationships, but it's how every type can get along well with every other type and how every type can get in trouble with every other type. Uh, so I just think that there are no perfect matches for any type. Uh, I do think that there are natural things that you can see that would work well with each pair of types and natural things that might not work so well. Uh, but as you said, more than anything else, uh, what determines uh, a good match or who's going to be a good partner is uh, the level of awareness. Is that person able to self-reflect? Is that person able to apologize or take responsibility when they do something that's not so good? Um, can that person um, really understand themselves at a deep enough level to really understand what they're bringing to the relationship in terms of what they project onto the other person and what their tendencies are? Uh, because the level of consciousness is going to be what really matters when it comes to uh, getting into a relationship also be the, the 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 stage of life you know sometimes um, is important uh, like i have a seven friend who always found it extremely difficult to relate with force but from a certain point of his life even though he doesn't do much inner work uh, he started to be a lot attracted to force. And that was because he was willing to explore uh, a little bit more of his inner world. He was interested. He didn't use any inner work technique, but in, on a later stage of his life, he was interested in that. So that might happen. So the last question we'll take for today um, is uh, a question that I think just allows us to talk a little bit more about um, some a couple of projects we're working on. So the question is, if you could co-author a book, what would you each bring to it? So it's interesting that, that this person is asking this question because we actually just finished a book. Uh, we just turned it into our publisher and it will be coming out next year. And we were actually approached by a publisher to write this book. Um, it probably isn't the one that we would have thought of, although I was really wanting to write a book like this. Um, it's basically going to be a more introductory book about the Enneagram, but it doesn't focus on just giving information about the types and subtypes. It focuses very much on the path of development of each type. Uh, and I think uh, I think what each of us brought to it is a uh, well. What we brought in common is a really strong uh, desire, commitment to focus on applying the Enneagram to help people understand what their work is, what their path forward is, and and what the different general stages are of those works. So we talked about this in terms of a three-step path, basically kind of identifying your type and self-observing to start identifying key patterns. And then a second stage, which is more about exploring the shadow and making unconscious tendencies more conscious. Uh, and then a third step that was uh, loosely speaking more about starting to embrace the high side and starting to 
uh, get more in touch with the virtue of the type, moving from being aware of the passion of the type to the virtue of the type and starting to get a taste of that higher side so that you can continue uh, working to manifest more of that. So that's the book that we just wrote that will be coming out next year. Anything you want to say about that? I know in terms of different uh, skills we brought, I know that you know I have some experience writing and so I was able to help with the organization and the writing of it, but um, took a lot of inspiration from Uranio in terms of the way he describes some of the particular developmental experiences of the types and his commitment to really talking about what's really re- required on that path of development. What would you add to that? Um, I think you and I have similarities uh, when writing, uh, mainly that we write too much and we go too <laughs> much into, yes. into depths of uh, understandings. Yes, but uh, you you are better than me when it comes to making sure that a person will understand you more easily, and I. I believe that I I still have this tendency that I'm it's much better today, but I still do have a little bit of this tendency to speak in sophisticated ways, hoping that people who will, uh, you know, be um, more interested in that will get what I'm saying and so on. But um, yeah, so that's not as good. But also, I think that usually our dynamics is that although both of us come up with theories, that I think of that a bit more, and then I run them through you and we discuss. Um, And there is this thing about me, it's a limitation I have, that I need to come up with my ideas before doing a brainstorm with anyone else. And then I discuss. While for you, it's it's not as much like that. So it's lovely to see the differences, and uh, that reflects in the ways that we write books or uh, how we think we would contribute differently uh, to writing a book. So we can tell people for the first time publicly the working title of that new book that comes out next year is called "Be You Now." And the subtitle is The Enneagram Guide to Waking Up and Discovering Your True Self. So that's the book that will be coming out next year. And, and I'm excited that that will be happening. And again, we had a lot of help from the publisher and the publisher's editor to make it a shorter book because both of us are really bad at, at, at doing short things. Um, but that's happening. And then I we might as well mention that we're also working on another book, uh, which is a book deeper, longer book that's about the inner growth process and all the things that need to be done along uh, along the way and in, in people's individualized type-based growth process. And that's I'm excited about that book as well. And now that we've finished the other book, uh, we're going to start working more on that one. So we want to thank you so much for listening. Join us again for our Enneagram 2.0 podcast, where we talk about all things Enneagram.